Let's pray together just for a moment. Father God, we know of the call of Jesus to come and to follow him, to be his disciples. Lord, we thank you that Jesus came into this world to save sinners, to die on the cross for our sins, that we might be made right with you. And we thank you that that all becomes the, the foundation the starting point of a life of discipleship. Lord, help us now as we think again this evening about what this life is that Jesus calls us to and how we might follow Jesus more faithfully in the the world in which you have placed us. By your Spirit, come and speak to us, we pray. Amen. What's John Stott talking about whenever he talks about a radical disciple? Well, if you've been around this church any length of time, or even if you've listened carefully to that prayer that I've just prayed, you'll know that any person who claims to be a Christian, who claims to be in Christ, is called to a life of discipleship. The Bible doesn't really talk about Christians. That's the language that we use Three times in the New Testament, the word Christians used, and it's mostly used as a nickname. The, the, the word that's used there in the New Testament 260-something times is the word disciple. And the Bible calls early followers of Jesus disciples because it's understood that every follower of Jesus was a disciple, an apprentice, somebody who had committed themselves to learning from Jesus how to live their lives. Stott says in this book that that we're using as a framework this summertime, he says, my concern in this book is that we who claim to be disciples of Jesus will not provoke him to say again, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That verse that we read from Luke chapter 6. He says, genuine discipleship is wholehearted discipleship. And David challenged us this morning about our willingness to live under the authority of Jesus. So John Stott is clear that a follower of Jesus is a disciple. But he uses this other word, this adjective to describe or or to fill this all out, and that's the word radical. The English word radical comes from the, the, the Latin uh, word radix, meaning root. Uh, originally, it was used uh, when it first came into the British language to speak of, of political uh, persons with extreme and reforming views. But nowadays, we use it in a much broader sense. A radical is any person who wants to go right to the root of the thing, right to the heart of the matter, and wants to live fully committed to that cause. So John Stott says that the noun and the adjective here must go together. He recognizes that there are different levels of commitment in the Christian community. Our common way of avoiding radical discipleship is to be selective, choosing those areas in which commitment suits us 
and staying away from those areas in which it will be costly. But because Jesus is Lord, we have no right to pick and to choose the areas in which we will submit to his authority. Folks, let's begin this journey then with John Stott as our guide. Eight areas of life where we must be radical disciples. The first area he identifies is non-conformity, is what he calls it. He says the church has a double responsibility to the world around it. On the one hand, we're to live, serve, and witness in the world, and on the other hand, we're to avoid becoming contaminated by the world. So we neither seek to preserve our holiness by escaping from the world, nor sacrifice our holiness by conforming to the world. This is a a huge theme uh, throughout the whole of the Bible, that God is calling together a people for himself who are supposed to be different than the world in which they live. So in Leviticus, we have the God of the Exodus telling his people, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. And this this theme, you can find it in every one of the main parts of Scripture. We've already seen it in the law. What about the prophets? Well, God's criticism of his people through the prophet of Ezekiel reads like this. You have not followed my decrees or kept my laws, but you have conformed to the standards of the nations around you. You're not different. You're just like the people all around you. And Jesus, he also preached this call to to non-conformity. So in the Sermon on the Mount, you have Jesus talking about the hypocrites and the pagans, and he adds, do not be like them. Be different. And then Paul, in his writings, and we read it in Romans chapter 12, Paul writes to the Romans, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the whole Bible is full of this, right the way through this idea that God's people aren't the same. We aren't to be the same as the people around us. We're to be different. We're called to live differently. Friends, I... I have to say, I wonder how much I'm grasping this and our contemporary church is grasping this. In in particular, I find myself asking the question, what difference does my Christian profession make? Are the people around me bowled over by a radically different life from theirs? Or do they look at me and think, well, there's Christoph. He He has Jesus as an ornament in his otherwise similar lifestyle. We, Jesus, part of his life on the mantelpiece there, but otherwise he's much the same as me. Christoph's involvement with the church, are those other folks who go to that church where he leads, is that just their hobby? In much the same way as I go to the gym or I play golf? Just... How, how much has this, this relationship with Jesus served to, to distinguish us 
or to make us different than the people around us. In the first chapter of this book, John Stott outlines four contemporary trends that he thinks are undermining the Christian's uh, radical, non-conforming lifestyle. Four trends that we need to be aware of if we want to be radical followers of Jesus Christ. And the first, he says, is pluralism. Even if you're no expert in worldviews or philosophies or isms, you'll know the word plural, and it means just multiple or many. So pluralism is a view of the world that affirms that there are multiple or many ways to live and that they're all equally valid. So as a result, pluralism will reject Christianity's claim that Jesus Christ is unique. And pluralism, therefore, will will condemn us for trying to, to share our faith with another person or to convert them, because that, that seems like just sheer arrogance in a, a pluralistic world. Folks, I don't know if you recognize that as the culture that we live in. I, I'm, I'm astonished at how quickly Britain is becoming just that kind of a culture. So how do we live in a culture of pluralism? Stott says that we live with great humility, I hope, and no sense of personal superiority. We live with the kind of clarity, or sorry, Stott speaks with the kind of clarity for which he's become famous, and he urges us to continue to affirm Jesus Christ, his uniqueness and the finality of his work. He says, for Christ is unique in his incarnation, the one and only God-man. He's unique in his atonement, for he died for the sins of the world, and he's unique in his resurrection. Only he has conquered death. So we may talk about Alexander the Great, Charles the Great, Napoleon the Great, but not Jesus the Great. He's not the Great. He's the only. There's no one like him. He has no rival or successor. In a culture of pluralism, radical disciples practice non-conformity. They continue to affirm that Jesus is the only, the one and the only way to God. A second widespread secular trend which Christian disciples have to resist is that of materialism. Let me first explain what I don't mean when I, when I talk about materialism. Christians aren't afraid of the material world. We aren't people who are invited to live in some sort of spiritual, different sphere. We live very much in this tangible world. We know that God created it, that he gave it to us as a blessing and a gift. And William Temple describes Christianity as the most material of all religions. The materialism that we do need to be aware of, though, is, is the idea that the things that we can touch and see and buy should dominate our lives to the exclusion of, of the depth of spiritual life with God. Jesus told us, do not store up treasures in heaven. He warned us against covetousness. 
Paul urges the disciples of Jesus Christ to develop a lifestyle of simplicity, generosity, and contentment. He said, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Brothers and sisters, we live in an incredibly materialistic world. Please allow that to to register with you. Because this influences everything about how how we can relate to God and how we can live for His glory. Our whole culture, in my opinion, is swathed in materialism. It's not just for rich people. I, I, in our parish, I've, I've walked along a street near where I live where you know, I have to laugh to myself because it's not only in one driveway that there's a black Porsche sitting. In the house next door, there's a black Porsche sitting. I thought to myself, goodness, the only way to stand out in this neighborhood is to drive an old banger. That's why I do it, by the way. It's, it's not that I, I don't like Porsches. But, but materialism isn't only in those places. Go to a much less affluent community. And the same, the same spirit, if not the same badges, it, it might be it's the size of the TVs that, that's the indicator of, of how, how much we think we've, we're enjoying material possessions. Folks, our culture, the, let me just put it like this, the relative wealth of people I think is just a smokescreen because the materialism goes from bottom to top and right across. Our culture is obsessed with stuff. Did did you see it in the news this week? I thought it was just nuts. For me, it was a a very tangible materialism gone mad moment. So Range Rover are launching a new car, and they've got Victoria Beckham on their design team. They're launching a new, smaller 4x4. So... Folks, what we have here is celebrities marketing four-by-fours for the school run. This is the world that we live in. Learn to question it, always to question it. See it for what it is. It's, It's madness. In a culture of materialism, radical disciples of Jesus Christ practice nonconformity. We say in our gatherings like this that only Jesus Christ can bring fulfillment and contentment. And then we go into our lives and we live it out. We demonstrate it by how we deal with stuff. A third contemporary trend which threatens us and to which we can't afford to surrender is the spirit of ethical relativism. These are John Stott's phrases, so don't blame me if they're at a different level than we normally. Ethical relativism, what is that? That's the idea that anything goes uh, in terms of morality. And what we see around us is that moral standards are slipping, particularly in the Western world. I remember hearing an interesting thing when the the pilots had flown their planes into the Twin Towers. I would never, ever want to justify that, but it was interesting to hear one of the reasons 
an Islamic fundamentalist gave for those actions. It, it was the, the, the morality of the West had become so offensive to the Islamic world that they, they were, felt they were driven to these kind of, of actions. Folks, the, the West, the, the part of the world that we live in, is, is an immoral slide, uh, the likes of which our culture has never seen before. Stott chooses to focus on the area of sexual ethics to illustrate this reality. He says that it used to be universally accepted that marriage is a monogamous, heterosexual, loving, and lifelong union, and only the only God-given context for lifelong intimacy. But now, even in some churches, cohabitation without marriage is widely practiced, dispensing with that commitment which is essential to authenticate marriage. While same-sex partnerships are promoted as a legitimate alternative to heterosexual marriage. An American social philosopher, a guy by the name of Abram Edel, when he writes on the subject, he gives us a sort of a manifesto for ethical relativism. If you're still wondering what that phrase means, this wee, this wee poem will help. It all depends on where you are. It all depends on who you are. It all depends on what you feel. It all depends on how you feel. It all depends on how you're raised. It all depends on what is praised. What's right today is wrong tomorrow. Joy in France in England sorrow. It all depends on point of view. Australia or Timbuktu. In Rome, do as the Romans do. If tastes just happen to agree, then you have morality. But where there are conflicting trends, it all depends. It all depends. Friends, a radical disciple of Jesus Christ will disagree with this view of the world. I want to say here, by the way, that I think we need to be careful that we're not completely rigid in our ethical decision-making. Sometimes the church has been dogmatic and inflexible and insensitive, and that's not at all uh, what I'm encouraging here. We need to learn to apply biblical principles sensitively to any moral or ethical situation. But we do believe that Jesus is Lord. John Stott says that the fundamental question before the church is, who is Lord? Is the church the Lord of Jesus Christ so that the church has liberty to edit and manipulate, accepting what it likes and rejecting what it dislikes? Or is Jesus Christ the head of the church? Is he our teacher and our Lord so that we accept and obey his teaching? In a culture of ethical relativism, radical discipleship demands non-conformity. We continue to affirm the authority of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and we submit to that authority, whatever the cost. The fourth and final of these contemporary trends which John Stott draws our attention to is that of narcissism. Narcissus, um, I got to know about him during my, my theological training. He's a, a key character in Greek mythology. So he's this handsome young man, 
And the, the basis of the story is basically that one day he's walking past a pool and he sees his own reflection. And my, does that change everything. When he sees how beautiful he is, he falls in love with himself. He goes back to the pool. He looks into the pool. He wants to get closer and closer until he falls in and he drowns. So narcissism is an excessive love of self. Do you think there's any narcissism in our culture? I looked up the lyrics of a couple of um, pop songs of the last couple of decades. You've got to search for the hero inside yourself. Search for the secrets you hide. Search for the hero inside yourself, and then you'll find the key to your life. For any of you who aren't M People fans, and I'm sure most of you are, um, you'll maybe recognize from your watching of X Factor in the last couple of years, these lyrics from the Mariah Carey song, Hero, which they adopted as a sort of an unofficial anthem of X Factor. There's a hero if you look inside your heart. You don't have to be afraid of what you are. And there's an answer if you reach inside your soul and the sorrow that you find will melt away. And then the hero comes along with the strength to carry on and you cast your fears aside and you know you can survive. So when you feel that hope is gone, just look inside you and be strong. And you'll finally see the truth that a hero lies in you. Folks, when this is our worldview, when the solution to all of our problems lies within, then we don't need a savior. We don't need somebody to come from somewhere else. We can be our own savior. Unfortunately, some of this teaching has permeated the church. So we now have Christians who teach us that we need not only love God and our neighbor, but that we must love ourselves And Stott says that this is surely a mistake. He gives three reasons. First, Jesus spoke of the first and the greatest commandment and of the second, but he did not mention this third. Secondly, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3 verse 2 that love of self is a sign of the last days. And thirdly, when the Bible does talk about love, the New Testament talks about an agape love and commends it. This is a love that's all about sacrifice of self in the service of others. In a culture of narcissism, radical disciples practice non-conformity. They believe that we don't need to find ourselves because we've already been found. We've already been loved. The Savior has died for us. Since he has first loved us, we're learning to love God and one another. Folks, we've considered here briefly three or four, sorry, secular trends. 
which threatened to engulf the Christian community. And in the face of these, we're called not to go with the crowd, but not, but to live a life of non-conformity. Over and against the culture of pluralism, we're to be a community of truth, standing for the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Over and against the challenge of materialism, we're to be a community of simplicity. Over against the challenge of relativism, we're a culture of obedience that does what Jesus calls us to. And over against the challenge of narcissism, we're to be a community that loves others. Let me close. We've been reminded here this evening about a biblical call to non-conformity. We're to be different. We're to be holy. We're not called to, to live the same life as the guy or the girl next door who doesn't know Jesus. We're set apart for God. So we're not like other people. We're set apart for God. Is this all that God's Word has to say about the nature of Christian people? Is God's Word entirely negative? Is it all about what we aren't and what we don't do and about avoiding being shaped in the mold of the world around us? No. God's Word is positive. Overwhelmingly positive at this point. The reason we're asked not to conform to the ways of this world is because we are to be like Christ. The reason for our non-conformity is so that we can be conformed into the image of God's Son, as Paul says in Romans 8. Friends, non-conformity this evening is not an end in itself. Please hear me when I say that. I think when Christians try that, they end up not being like the world, but not looking like anything very attractive. They end up just being weird. And we're never called to be weird in that way. There is no biblical call to be that kind of different. Our call is to be not like the world, that we might be like Christ. Not to be sold out in the things that other people are sold out on, so that our hearts are open and overflowing with the Spirit. We're willing to stand out from the crowd to go against the stream because we have a rich and a beautiful vision for life. We want to be like Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we sometimes forget or underestimate just how, how different our lives would be if they were 100% surrendered to Jesus. Lord, give us eyes to see how Jesus would live if he, he walked in this era and in this place. And Lord, as we see that, as your Spirit makes it clear and reveals it to us, Draw us into this way of life. Lord, take away this fear that we have of standing out from the crowd. Give us instead a, a healthy respect for you and a desire to please you and live for you and show you to the world. 
Lord, help us not to conform to this world. But please conform us to Jesus. Make us like him. Amen.